take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I'm sure you noticed in your worship guide that the title of today's message is the Jesus of the baptism. And some of you were baffled by that. You probably thought, poor Chuck, he's been in such pain this week that he got his sermon title completely backwards. Because we all know that this is a passage about the baptism of Jesus, right? Well, not so fast. I will admit that in years past when I preached through the Gospels, I tended to preach a message about the baptism of Jesus and focus on the ordinance of baptism. Because after all, we are Baptist, and the ordinance of baptism is very precious and important to us. And so, alliterated with the letter M, I would preach about the motive for baptism, which is obedience to the divine command. I would preach about the method of baptism, baptism by immersion, not sprinkling or pouring. I would preach about the meaning of baptism, and we would look at how this confesses our faith in the Lord Jesus as the, the Son of God and the suffering servant, and how water baptism signifies our spiritual baptism and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. In and so forth. But I'm now convinced that that is not the best way to handle this passage. Why? Because the Gospels are to be interpreted Christocentrically. In other words, the main focus of at least our four Gospels of the New Testament is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, this passage is not so much about the baptism of Jesus as it is about the Jesus of the baptism. Let me put it this way. When my mother was a young woman, she was a fairly accomplished artist. And when I would visit my grandparents' home, there in the dining room, there would be displayed beautiful oil paintings and pastels that she had created in her youth. But my mother had five kids, four boys, who were rather rambunctious. 
and keeping all of us in line and providing for our needs and guiding and training us took so much of her time that as a young mother, she completely abandoned those talents. And so when she became an empty nester uh, for her birthday that year, I, I bought her an oil painting kit with easels and canvases and oil paints and brushes and encouraged her to revive that old gift. And so for my next birthday, uh, she made for me a picture of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, which hangs in my office at home to this very day. Now imagine me tearing into that picture, and after I cast aside the ribbons and the wrapping paper, I hold it up and say, Mama, what a beautiful picture frame. I love the fancy scroll work on the frame. I love the antique silver finish. I, I love the way the frame complements the picture inside. What a beautiful picture frame. Now, how do you think my mother would have felt? Well, I, I think she would have been hurt. She would have been confused and probably a little bit irritated. Because any dummy with any appreciation for art knows that the frame is to merely complement the picture, not distract attention away from it. And some of you are already ahead of me, you know where I'm going. My argument is that the baptism of Jesus is merely the frame, but the focal point of the heavenly artist is the Jesus of the baptism. Because this event reveals to us amazing truths about who Jesus is and why he came. This event reveals to us that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist and thus more than a mere man. This event reveals that Jesus is characterized by perfect and immediate obedience to the commands of the Father and thus is qualified to be our sinless Savior. This event shows that Jesus possesses the power of new creation and came to create a new people for the glory of God. This event shows us that Jesus is God's chosen King, the Messiah, who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. And this event shows that Jesus is the sacrificial servant of the Lord foretold in the prophecies of Isaiah, who will suffer for our sins in our place as our atoning sacrifice. First of all, the baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism is superior to John the Baptist and thus more than a mere man. Look at the response of John the Baptist when the Lord Jesus approaches him and request to be baptized at John's hands. John is horrified at the thought. Because John has already announced that the Messiah who was coming after him would be vastly greater than John himself in both position and 
power. And the Messiah is so much greater than John the Baptist that it is unfathomable to John that he should be called upon to baptize the Messiah. So he responds, I should be baptized by you. And the implication is ordinarily the superior would baptize the inferior. And John says, shockingly, but you come to me? And John's response to Jesus is reiterating what we've already seen several times before in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus's absolute supremacy. Remember in Matthew eleven eleven, the Lord Jesus said, truly I tell you that of those born of women, that is mere human beings, no one has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest of all mere human beings. But Jesus is so vastly superior to him that John is not only unworthy to untie and carry the Lord Jesus' sandals, a task beneath the dignity of any Hebrew slave, John's not even worthy to baptize the Lord Jesus either. Now think about that. John the Baptist, by this time in his ministry, has baptized hundreds, if not thousands, of repentant sinners without any hesitation at all. But when this man comes with his request to be baptized, John recoils. It is unthinkable to him because of his understanding of Jesus' complete supremacy. Now, John is the greatest of all humanity, and Jesus is so vastly superior to him, who then must Christ be? Not merely a man, but the God-man. Deity incarnate, God in human flesh, the Emmanuel. Although John the Baptist is merely the son of a humble priest named Zechariah, Jesus is the virgin-born son of God. If John the Baptist is the prophet of God, then Jesus is the God of the prophets. Second, the baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism is characterized by perfect and immediate obedience and thus qualified to be our sinless Savior. I think that John balked at the idea of baptizing the Lord Jesus not only because he couldn't conceive of an inferior baptizing someone so vastly superior to himself, I think he also balks because John's baptism was a baptism marking the repentance of the baptized for their sin. And John recognizes that Jesus is not a sinner. He has no sin to confess. He has no sin to repent of. And thus, Jesus' baptism cannot be a baptism of his own personal repentance. Why then does Jesus request baptism? Well, I would argue it's a simple act of obedience to a divine command. 
John the Baptist is a prophet of God. He speaks with God's own authority as God's spokesman. And he commanded the Israelites to be baptized. And if Jesus had refused this baptism, he would have been guilty of a single transgression. But the Lord Jesus is adamant that he must obey this prophetic divine commandment. So he says to John, permit it for now, for it is appropriate for us in order to fulfill every act of righteousness or to fulfill all righteousness. And this is what the Lord Jesus is saying. He's saying, John, of the 613 commandments of the Torah, I have kept every single one. But the Father has issued a new commandment, the commandment to be baptized, and I must obey that as well. And in Jesus' obedience to the commandment of baptism, he now fulfills all righteousness. He has been obedient to every single commandment that God ever issued. I notice that this act of obedience required some sacrifice on Christ's part. Christ travels from Nazareth or Capernaum, most likely at this point in his ministry, all the way down to the banks of the Jordan River where John is conducting his ministry. It's a distance of about 60 miles, which would have been a four-day walk in the biblical era, one way, eight days round trip. And yet Jesus makes that fairly long journey because he is adamant that he must obey every commandment of his Father. And notice that as he obeys this commandment, he has a sense of urgency about it. This is not something that he merely thinks, well, I'll get around to it eventually. No, when he tells John, permit it, he uses a grammatical form that expresses urgency, and then he intensifies that sense of urgency even more by saying, let it be so now, immediately, this very moment. The point that I'm making is the Lord Jesus, in example to us, by the way, was committed to obey every commandment of the Father without any hesitation or delay. And in this obedience, he confirms what other New Testament authors say, like the author of Hebrews 4.15, Jesus is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Or 1 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us, though he knew no sin. Why does the New Testament stress Jesus' sinless perfection repeatedly? It's because that sinless perfection qualifies him to be our Savior. If Jesus had sin of his own, 
He could not have died for our sins in our place. Any penalty he suffered would have been a penalty that he personally deserved. But because the Lord Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb, because he is sinless, he is qualified to die for our sins in our place as our substitute. And three, the baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism possesses the power of new creation and transforms the people of God. How? Well, Matthew writes that after Jesus is baptized, the heavens are opened and the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, it is obvious that the Spirit does not descend on the Lord Jesus to transform Him personally. He didn't need that transformation, right? It's already been made clear that in the act of baptism, He now fulfills all righteousness. He has obeyed every single commandment from the Father. But no, the Spirit descends on the Lord Jesus at the baptism for our benefit, for the sake of our transformation. Remember, John the Baptist has already announced that the Messiah came to perform not a baptism of water, but a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And baptizing with the Holy Spirit is a reference to the fulfillment of the new covenant where God pours out His Spirit and the Spirit transforms God's people from the inside out. Remember Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and he will cause you, he will move you, compel you to keep my commandments and fulfill my ordinances. And the fact that the spirit visibly descends on Jesus at his baptism confirms that he is the coming one who will perform the baptism of the Spirit, who will impart God's Spirit to God's people so that they become obedient, righteous, and holy. And that transforming power of Christ by the bestowal of the Spirit is portrayed through the descent of the Spirit in a particular form the form of a dove. Now, you probably know that biblical interpreters have scratched their heads over the reference to the descent of the Spirit like a dove for millennia, and they've come up with a number of explanations. Some say that the Spirit assumes the form of a dove because a dove is a universal symbol of peace. And the Messiah came to establish peace between repentant sinners and a holy God, to reconcile them to God. Theologically true, but I don't think that it's the point that the Spirit's form makes here. Others have said, no, a dove in the ancient world was like the modern-day carrier pigeon. It was a messenger bird. And the descent of the Spirit in the form of a dove confirms that the voice from heaven is relaying a heavenly message. Well, certainly 
the voice from heaven is relaying a heavenly message, but that's not the point of the dove. On the contrary, the description of the Spirit as taking the form of a dove alludes to a very specific and critical Old Testament passage. Put on your thinking caps for a moment and let me ask, can you think of an Old Testament text in which the Holy Spirit, like a bird, hovers over water, much like the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism assumed the form of a bird and hovers over the baptismal waters, the waters of the Jordan. Exactly, Genesis 1, 2. Now, the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was, and then the translations will vary, but the Hebrew word is rakaf, which means to hover or, or to flutter. It's a verb that was typically used to speak of a bird hovering in midair by fluttering its wings. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep, the primordial waters. And because that particular Hebrew verb was used, the rabbis of ancient times tended to portray the Holy Spirit's activity in creation in Genesis 1 as that of a bird. Sometimes the Spirit was portrayed as an eagle, but most frequently he's described as, guess what? A dove. And here's my point. When the Holy Spirit assumes this form in its descent, upon Jesus hovering over the baptismal waters. The Spirit is intentionally reenacting the moment that we read about in Genesis 1-2, and is indicating that when Jesus bestows the Spirit, when He performs this baptism of the Spirit, it will be an act of new creation. Now, the doctrine of new creation is one that permeates the Scriptures. You might remember we've already seen reference to it in the very first phrase of Matthew's Gospel. Because remember, although some translations say an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ or something like that, the, the original Greek says, Biblos Genesios Jesu Christu, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And Matthew wants us to understand that the ministry of Jesus is writing a new book of Genesis because Jesus' ministry will bring about a new creation. And that's going to be confirmed when we get to Matthew 19. And the Lord Jesus describes the Messianic era. Several different translations are used in our English versions. But the Messianic era is actually described with the noun Pauline Genesia, which means the new Genesis, the new beginning, the beginning again, the restoration of all things. And you know well 
that that doctrine of new creation becomes a focal point in the theology of the Apostle Paul in his letters. He'll say in Galatians 6 to the Judaizing heretics, it's not circumcision that matters or uncircumcision that matters. What matters is that you are a new creation. Ephesians 2.10, after he explains that we're saved by grace through faith, not by our works of righteousness, he goes on to say that while we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let's say it again, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's not talking about the original creation there in Ephesians 2.10. He's talking about the new creation. And perhaps the most crucial text of all is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Where does the Apostle Paul get this doctrine of new creation? It it was taught before him by the Lord Jesus, by the Old Testament prophets. It's taught by the evangelist, the Apostle Matthew. And the Apostle Paul picks it up and elaborates on it under the inspiration of the Spirit. But make no mistake, he did not invent it. The miracle of new creation was a hallmark of Jesus' ministry all along. And so when we see the Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus at His baptism in this particular form, it is a reminder that the Lord Jesus did not just come to save us from the penalty of sin, He came to change us from the power of sin, to transform our life from the inside out and make us the holy people that God desires. You remember the prayer of the psalmist David, Psalm 51.10, after he had shamed the name of his Lord by his adultery with Bathsheba. With a penitent spirit, he says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's significant that he uses that verb, create, barah. It it doesn't mean to make something out of something. It means to make something out of nothing. (laughs) And what David is admitting is, Lord, I, I want to be a righteous and holy man whose life brings you glory, but you have nothing to work with here. There is no good in me that you can build upon If I'm to have a clean heart, you must create it ex nihilo, out of nothing, just like you created the universe in the first place. David recognizes that he can only be transformed by an act of new creation. And the baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism is the one who performs this miracle of new creation in answer to David's prayer and to ours. The baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism is God's chosen king 
who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. The Father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism in verse 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And with those words, he actually quotes two different Old Testament texts. Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Now, first century Jews recognized that both of these texts were messianic. Both of these texts were prophecies about the coming Messiah. First, the Father says, you are my beloved Son. This does not mean that Jesus was not the Son of God until His baptism, and then He's adopted by the Father at His baptism as some ancient heretics taught. Now, we already know from the Gospel of Matthew that the God-man, deity incarnate, was Son of God from conception, at least, because He's conceived by the Holy Spirit and is called the Emmanuel. What then does this pronouncement mean, you are my beloved son? That's a reference to Psalm 2, which says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one, His Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they want to throw off the shackles of God and His Messiah's rule. They want to rebel against their authority. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, which refers to the kiss of homage falling at the king's feet and kissing those feet in an act of humble submission to his rule. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, which the father quotes at Jesus' baptism, is a coronation hymn. It is a psalm that was sung at the crowning and installation of Israel's king. The pronouncement, you are my son, 
indicated that this king was God's own representative, that he manifested God's own authority, that he would rule over all the nations and his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth, and that any who rebelled against his authority and refused to pay him homage would suffer God's wrath, but that those who found refuge in him, that is, who turned to him for salvation, would be blessed. And when the Father quotes these words at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. He's saying he is the promised Messiah of Psalm 2. He is the one to whom you must do homage. He is the one who will crush all human rebellion. He is the one who will punish the unrepentant rebels with his wrath, but will bless those who take refuge in him with gracious salvation. In other words, these words announce that Jesus is the messianic king. Now, this has been an emphasis of Matthew's gospel all along, hasn't it? Remember Matthew 1.1, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David. And son of David meant that he is the promised seed of David who fulfills the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, the one who will reign from David's throne over God's people forever and forever. We saw it in the visit of the Magi to Bethlehem. Where is he who is the born king? And it will be reiterated again and again in the Gospel of Matthew till we come to those climactic words of the Great Commission, and Jesus says, all authority to rule and reign has been given to me on heaven and on earth. One of the great themes of this gospel is that Jesus is the divine king before whom we must bow in absolute submission, and that truth is made evident in the Father's words at Jesus' baptism. So the question is, have you bowed before him? Have you paid him homage? Have you submitted to his rule over your lives? And finally, the baptism of Jesus shows that the Jesus of the baptism is the sacrificial servant of the Lord who suffered for our sins in our place. The second half of the Father's utterance in whom I am well pleased, is also an Old Testament quotation. It comes from Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And Matthew translates that Hebrew statement of the Father in Matthew 12, 18, and when he translates it, it sounds exactly like these words, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew confirms for us in Matthew 12, 18, that the Father's words are a quotation of Isaiah 42, 1. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the ancient Jews recognized that as a messianic text about the promised Messiah. But, but what is more important is that description of 
Yahweh's servant is going to be repeated in four servant songs in the prophecies of Isaiah. And our favorite of these servant songs appears in Isaiah 52 and 53. That's where the prophet describes the same servant and he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Beaten so badly that he's not recognizable as a human being. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle with purification like the Old Testament priest. Kings will shut their mouths on him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows we did esteem him stricken smitten by god and afflicted he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was imposed upon him. By his scourgings, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The song of the suffering servant goes on to describe the guiltless suffering for the guilty and even describes his death as the offering of a guilt offering. John the Baptist the Lord Jesus, the New Testament writers all recognize that the song of the suffering servant is fulfilled in the human Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by speaking at this critical moment in Jesus' ministry in a way that identifies him not only as the Messiah, of Psalm 2, but also as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, the Father makes it clear that Jesus has not just come to rule and to reign, but he has come to die for our sin in our place.
place so that we can escape the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. You see, when we look beyond the baptism of Jesus to the Jesus of the baptism, what we find is a beautiful and powerful summary of the gospel of salvation. We find that Jesus was sinless, and so he's qualified to die as our substitute for our sin in our place. We discover that he's the suffering servant who died as our guilt offering, bearing our iniquities in our behalf so that we could be forgiven. We discover that he is the messianic king who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. And we discover that he is deity incarnate, God in human flesh. And all of the essentials that we must believe in order to be forgiven and transformed by a gracious God are there. Jesus is our God, our Savior, and our King. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We've seen confirmation that Jesus is our God, Savior, and King again and again in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. But listen, this time, that confession does not come from the lips of a prophet. It comes from the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven itself. There are only two times in the Gospel of Matthew that the Father speaks aloud, and both times he identifies Jesus as his Son, the one in whom he is well pleased, that is, the sacrificial servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you reject the Gospel today, If you think you can have a relationship with God any other way, you're not only brushing aside what the prophets and the apostles said as a lie, you're calling God himself a liar. You're acting as if the voice from heaven itself did not know what he was talking about when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I would never have the audacity to ask you to believe me as a preacher in everything that I say. But wouldn't you agree that we can trust everything that the Heavenly Father says aloud at the very least? Remember those words, and I pray that you will be moved to confess faith in Jesus as God's Savior and King right now. Pray to him and say, Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I know I deserve your punishment. And I believe you succeeded in all the ways I failed. I believe you obeyed despite all the times I've been disobedient. I believe you're the sinless one who died for my sin in my place. Please save me. And I believe you're the promised Messiah. I pay you homage. 
I submit to your authority. I ask you to rule and reign over me. And Lord Jesus, I worship you as the Son of God, God in human form. Not just a prophet of God, but the God of the prophets. And God promises that when we offer to him that faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King, our forgiveness of sin and his life-transforming power is his assured gift to us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31 And if you have confessed that faith today, in a few moments when we sing together, I'm going to ask you to come forward and tell one of our church leaders that you have asked Jesus to be your God, your Savior, your King, and we'll tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life, and we'll celebrate God's mercy and grace to you that He's also extended to us. Dear Father, We pray that the gospel has been clear, not from my lips. We believe it's clear from your lips. Move the unrepentant to repentance. Move the rebellious to submission. Move the disbelieving and doubting to faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and King for the sake of their souls and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.